you think about how you value an investment, man. You would think about all future. Ca- you think about how you you come up with a DCF, right? You will say earnings grow at fifteen percent per year, and then it slows down to ten or five, and then after that it grows, it stops growing, and then yeah. it it won't grow faster than inflation, right? And so you come up with a certain value at the bottom, and because your 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 discount rate for a terminal value is inflation. If a company can always raise prices above inflation, what is the terminal value? It's infinite, lah, in theory. Exactly. So here you are dealing with companies that are theoretically worth infinite. Before we begin the podcast, have you gotten your free ebook? It's called the Build a Six Figure Portfolio Guidebook. Now, inside it, we share with you the tips and tricks to bring your stock investing skills to the next level. The best part, it's only 10 pages long and it's totally free. Whether you're on Spotify or YouTube, the link to download is in the description or you can go to www.firl.co slash f-r-e-e or www.firl.co slash free. Hey guys, it's been a while since we did a podcast and we have a returning guest, Mr. Jonathan uh, Choi. Welcome back to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So I think quite a few people enjoyed your podcast uh, previously, but we're going to do uh, you know, a slightly more succinct version now. Okay. Maybe more succinct how we do things. So I'll start off with, uh, during the past year, what are, how, how has it been for you actually investment wise, you know, you got any new mental models, any, yeah, anything new? I think investment wise, obviously the market is quite interesting. The last few, the, the last one year or so. Yeah. Yeah. The one thing that I realized is that whenever I feel particularly smart, like I always feel like, Oh, I want to keep looking at my account because I feel particularly smart. That's basically a time you should start to sell everything. And yeah. my gut always tells me to sell everything then because I'm not that smart. Yeah. <laughs> and then, but um, but yeah, but I have a, I have decent amount in China, decent amount in US, decent amount in Malaysia. So I guess my net returns are roughly evenish. Right. Yeah. So let's go straight into China. Uh, I think for those who are interested, you can watch the the old ones, uh, all mm. your old podcasts where. You, you spoke about why you were going into uh, China and, you know, you were reducing Malaysian exposure. But, you know, having now spent at least more than a year into mm. China, what are some discoveries you made? I think, number one, the few things that I found out is that so number one, we have to ask ourselves the question on like what kind of Chinese companies that we want to invest in and what kind of sectors do we really want to look at? Okay. So for me, the there are a few sectors that I like a lot. I like it from December 2022 and I still like it now. And one of them is, uh, or actually as early as October 2022 when the prices really went crazy, was one of them was the e-commerce site. So for e-commerce for me is quite interesting because number one, we, when you think about what it takes to make an e-commerce platform, right? Okay. If you think about like from when the entire space first started, you could come up with a platform first, but you also then need to spend a, a great amount of money into opening up your logistics business, et cetera. 
beneath it. So each companies do it differently. JD went and just said, I'm going to build it myself. And then Alibaba says, I'll invest in people to build it for me. But the thing is that the logistic business is not what gives you the money, but the logistic business is also what gives you the logistic business is something that you don't expect to make money there at all. In fact, you expect yourself to lose a little bit of money there, but it's there to support the platform. But the interesting thing is that this logistic business, when it comes up, you cannot really keep it just to yourself. Instead, you need to open it up to let other people use as well. Otherwise, you won't really hit Critical the scale mass, that yeah. you need. Yeah. And you can't really get the cost down as fast as you would like. And so you need to open it up to other people. But then when other people take on this particular segment, they then can skip the logistics part and then go on as they will. So, and, and then just make the money on the road that you have paid for them already. So, but the thing about e-commerce platforms currently is that, you know, we are, since December, 2022, I was thinking to myself, the environment at which a new e-commerce platform can come up, it's non-existent anymore. Because for you to come up with an e-commerce platform, you need either very low interest rates because you need to burn money. Capital, yeah. Correct. In order to bring in the new customers. And number two, you need to identify niches on how you enter into this market, like which market is underserved or how is some supply or how is some demand not yet discovered. So you think about how each step of them goes. The first one is Alibaba. Alibaba just goes, okay, there is no such thing as e-commerce. So I'll build it now. I'll build my 3P networks. And then for Ting Tong, they look at Alibaba and they go, okay, Alibaba is full of fake stuff. So I'm going to do... I'm going to source the products myself. Mm. I'm going to buy it in humongous scale. I'm going to make sure that there is less people who can be my 3P partners. I only accept very high quality 3P partners. And so I become famous for having only the real stuff. If you buy an LV bag on on Alibaba back then, it might be fake. But if you buy it on JD, it will definitely be real. Okay. And so they went into there. And then after that, Pintuotuo look at the market and go, okay, you guys are going this way. So what is the market that is left? Then Pintuotuo goes, well, there is a subsection of the market that is very poor, that is in the poor end of the different poor tiers of the China market. And they are, and in exchange for being poor, they have more time on their hands. And so they are willing to interact with your product more, with your app more. And then they just want lower prices. That's it. And then you can, ta- you can give these people lower prices by just taking in the manufacturers directly into your platform and then have them create goods for, your, for, for these people to go and buy. And so Pintoto took that model and then they grew a lot faster than Alibaba and Qingdong for a long time. And now they are, I think, second or third in the market. And then looking at all these platforms, then you go into the part where how do we then find more demand for this? Okay, so obviously they, they all went into live streaming, all this kind of stuff. But then how do you find more demand for it? And that's where TikTok or Douyin in China popped up, where they basically came up before they did all e-commerce. They, they came up with, you know, a way, they, they, they basically came up into the short form video formats. And then that was a huge amount of volume. I think you saw reels, the yeah. amount of, and for me personally, I advertise on Facebook. I can tell you that my cost per ad after reels came out dropped like hell because of the sheer amount of volume that is going in. And so you have more ad space, et cetera. And so Toyin looked at that and went, well, why don't we sell products as well? And then you look at their in-house that they have, they built a system where you can list the products there and then people can sell your products directly within the app for a commission very easily. 
And so they become now a juggernaut in terms of uh or in terms of live video or live live video commerce. Like back in the day, not even back in the day, when you're talking back in the day, you're talking like three years ago, maybe four years ago, Alibaba was like 80% of the market when it came to live streaming. And now they are like number three already behind Douyin and maybe behind Kwai Show. I'm not sure if Kwai Show is ahead of Alibaba, but Douyin is definitely number one now and their GMV just grows like hell. But the interesting thing also is that all everybody is also trying to copy what everybody does. So, you know, when, so for example, Jing Tong now, when they see Pintuoto grabbing their share like that, they also go, okay, I'm going to do manufacturer to consumer as well. And I'm also going to just let anybody into my platform now so that I can sell the really cheap stuff. But then I'll maybe move it into a separate app or to a separate platform, etc. So there is a lot of push into this market. And so when I think about this market, and so, and then obviously you have companies, let's say Shopee or C, they just popped up and then they popped up by offering basically they basically, I think the number one thing that C did that was very different from other places was that they were the first to directly incentivize people to leave reviews themselves instead of having the manufacturer send the customer message and say, would you like to leave a review in exchange for a little bit of money or what? Yeah. They were the first to do that. And so they, they had their niche for a long time in Southeast Asia. And then also they were very strong about making sure that you get uh, manufacturers in China to list their products directly on the app. Okay. So, you know, but then the thing is that all, a lot of these markets, sometimes when I study them, I, I always think to myself to, when some people go, oh, I have 40% of my portfolio in Alibaba. I say that they say they make a statement like that. And last time I used to have around 30% of my portfolio in Alibaba. I used to think to myself is that, you know, the, the, the first time you study Alibaba, you probably find that it's a very incredible company, etc. But the problem is that the more you study this entire space, you realize that the top tier players are all very top tier. Yeah. And the market is still shifting all the time. And at the end, you just realize you don't know anything at all. But there is a few trends that are very clear. That so the so the question now is that so so obviously now and then there's obviously one more in the US called VIP Shop. This one is a particularly good one, and I like this one a lot. Because VIP Shop basically goes, okay, we're gonna sell luxury or more like mid to high luxury kind of goods, but we will sell the the warehouse units or the unsold units or the off-season units, and then we will sell them at a discount. And, they are, and their customers are extremely loyal to them because you can really find the really great stuff there right, at very good right. discounts. And the, and the CEO of that company basically went, well, my shares are cheap, so I'm going to throw most of my cash flow into buying back shares. And they are basically retiring something like 20% of the company in stock per year currently. I think last year they bought back around 20% of the company stock. Wow. Yeah. So... So it's so so it's it's very interesting currently. And so when I think about e-commerce companies, the question that I think about then is where is the next niche? Okay? How do these players gain an edge over the other player? Okay? And and where else can you go? So so the the first step that is helping all of them is that there is very little new places that you can go without scale already in hand. If you go now and you say, 
high benchmark. I would like capital to build scale for an e-commerce platform. Benchmark will say, ha ha ha, you, you go somewhere else, you know? Yeah. Okay. So now it is more of, you need to find a way to offer more value to the customers you already have. And then what is the line that is left? So on that hand, you see, when you study e-commerce platforms, you can't just stop. You can't just go and say, oh, I've studied Alibaba or I've studied Alibaba by JD. You need to study all of them. And when you study all of them, you realize that actually that's not enough. You need to study even more. So after that, you realize that they are all retailers and you also need to study the retailers of the world. So that will bring you to your Walmart, to your Costco's, to your BJ's, to your Aldi's, to your Trader Joe's, to Dollar General, etc. And the number one trend that I'm seeing in terms of retailers in general is disintermediation, which is basically cutting out the middleman. Okay. Now, if you look at, you look, if you go into Walmart and you look at their revenues currently, their revenues did not grow that much over the last 10, 15 years. Okay. Costco grows their revenue still at around 7 to 10% per year, which is insane. Yeah. Considering. The size, right? Correct. And also then they are shop, then they are, uh, then there are obviously other retailers like for example Aldi or the uh, European brands right yeah Aldi or, or BJ's or Trader Joe's for example they are actually still growing very nicely like Aldi is still growing like 15-20% a year in the US so what is the difference so the difference between Costco and Aldi and Aldi and all these other players is they basically just went and looked at the space and go, okay, I have this huge amount of scale. I have this huge amount of customer data. Why do I need to sell your product when I can make exactly the same one and offer to my customers at 15% discount? Mm-hmm. Because now I take away your entire gross margin and I only need like 10% margin and then I'm happy with it already. And then I just make, and then I just make it up from that. So if you look at that, right? You realize that, for example, if you go on Costco, uh, basically now around 50% of their sales, which is like some obscenely huge amount, they are the number two retailer in the US or something, it's all coming from their own made products. For Aldi, for example, they sell 90% of their own products. And the thing is, because of how the internet has made sourcing so much more efficient and easier, they can now basically make the exact same product with the exact same taste and Aldi even copies how these companies design their boxes. And just, yeah. And then they just sell it as their own. And then there's just a huge amount of uh, value yeah. there because they're either the, the Aldi's, for example, their motto is just like, why pay more or something like that. Yeah, yeah. You know, for the same thing. And so when, and then the thing is you go on like Reddit or all these places and you look at the reviews of all these products, like you look at the reviews for the tequila of Costco versus the tequila of, let's say this brand, they say that they actually taste the same. And then they realize that the manufacturer for this tequila actually also manufactures the high-end tequila. And then you're kind of like, huh? Like, so, so it's actually quite an interesting space where a lot of yeah. your FMCG makers are actually cannibalizing themselves because yeah. they are making the products for other people, the same products at a much cheap, and then they, these people then sell it for a cheaper price, et cetera. So they, when you, yeah. So sorry to cut you off, but uh, before we move on to the next question, it, I mean, it's a really expensive, uh, expensive, even A, um, 
industry, right? It's always, like you say, it's always shifting. It's also growing. And of course, not to put you on the spot and as well, you may change your mind in the future. But if you had to summarize everything that you've learned from the space, you know, from looking at the e-commerce platforms to the retailers and, and all that, what are some of the key insights in short? The first one is, Jeff Bezos is right. Right. The customers only want, the pro, only want more selection, better quality, and cheaper. faster delivery, and cheaper prices. Yep. When it comes to retail companies, you must do these four. And the only way you do these four is via scale and via picking the right niches to go. So if you find a company that is trying to gain market share by very strong disintermediation, i.e. making their own products, and you look at the reviews of those products and they're very good, and you look at the sales of those products as a volume of their sales going up over time, you can bet that that company will probably do pretty well over the long term right. because they're just offering that much more value. So someone looking at the, let's say the Chinese market going back to China, if you are bullish on e-commerce and since you said, you know, things are shifting all the time, do you think it's smarter to just say, you know, I'm just going to get all three of these guys? Well, like that's JDP, basically what maybe. I do. Right. Okay. I think that'll be a good <laughs> The answer is just yeah. get all four and then you probably won't have a bad outcome. But so if you say all four, what's the four one? VIP shop, Pintuo Tuo, Ching Tong, and Alibaba. But we need to understand that Pintuo Tuo is now clearly doing extremely well when it comes to selling overseas. Why? Because you need to understand like Shopify's or basically all these online store business they are all basically just doing drop shipping or close to doing drop shipping of getting it from China. Correct. So Termu, which is a Pinduoto overseas arm, is basically letting these, is basically bringing the manufacturers directly to the, to the customers yep. in overseas. And you notice that Termu, they do very well in, in places where it's really very entrenched with the other e-commerce players. Like there's only a, Amazon there, US, Europe, they do extremely well. But if you look at Termo in Philippines, Thailand, Malaysia, etc., it's not doing well at all. Mm -hmm. Now, why is that the case? The simple answer is Malaysia and all these places, we already had manufacturers from China directly linking into Shopee and Lazada, etc. And so the price differential doesn't look so big. But for an American, you look at the Amazon price versus the it looks very big. And that's also why, for example, uh, Amazon is not taking in. A, last time they used to block all the Chinese sellers. And now they're saying, let's open up the gates again for the Chinese sellers to come into my platform and sell. So it's, it's basically that. And so, but the interesting thing that I'm finding out now, that not finding out now, that is going to be seen now is that the e-commerce players, the China e-commerce players are starting to go, let me go and compete overseas. Let me fight with the Americans. Let me fight with the West, with the Europeans. And I suspect they're going to win now because they are going to be much better at doing M2C and give the unbeatable prices. But there's one company I think right now that I suspect will not do very well for e-commerce. It's not Amazon. It's C-Limited, Shopee. I suspect Shopee is not going to do very well because if you look at the kind of discounts that they're giving out now on their app, is actually more than the take rate. Mm. 
That means more than the money that they get from each customer. So what they're doing now is that they're trying to make you buy like hell by giving you discounts like hell. But I don't think that's the solution. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's not the solution because the solution is because they're trying to fight with TikTok. But the problem is you can't fight with TikTok because you can't get the same amount of volume of customers as TikTok because people go on TikTok to watch random videos and your app does not have random videos for me to watch. Yeah. So that's why they try to introduce those games and all that, but it, it mean, come, doesn't come closer. It's, there, there's basically no 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 yeah. user generated content. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. I I I think that's it's great. I mean, just sticking on China, right? I also know that you like another, let's call it oligopolistic kind of market, which is uh the spirits market or the alcohol market, right? Okay. Uh, I know we had a chat before this that you are very interested in a few names. I suspect your analysis on the sector will be a lot less compared to e-commerce. But give us a breakdown on the scene in, in, in China and some of the names that you're interested in I as think, far as alcohol is concerned. I think for this part, then we need to go and ask a second. Is We need to start thinking about luxury goods. Okay. I remember about a few months ago, I took a trip to Hong Kong. And then I was going through, I was going to the analyst meeting there, here and there, here and there. And then I was, then one of the meetings that I went to was to Hengan. And then there's another one called Suisei. So Hengan is the largest tissue manufacturer in China. And then I met, we went there and then the, the son of the boss was doing the, was leading the analyst meeting. And he was talking about how, you know, he's not sure if he can raise prices. And then he's talking about how they can't really do their own brand stuff because then it will cannibalize their own. They yeah, can't really yeah. do their own brand because it will cannibalize their OEM business that they do for other people and the other people are not going to be happy, etc. And then we met the, and then I met Suisse, which also does the vitamins, etc. And then again, they're saying, we're not sure if we can really raise the prices. And then we're going to these new ventures, but there's a lot of competition, blah, blah. And then I met with one, one, which is the one of the largest snacks manufacturers in China. And on average over the last five years, they've raised prices by 1.5% per year. So and then this coincided with the entire period when I was studying all these companies. And then I just see this humongous capitalistic force of just constant competition, extremely cutthroat competition every single or everywhere. And it's just a constant fight to, you know, not be able to raise the prices, you know? And then you think about like, let's say Costco that makes 0.5% margin at the bottom. And the reason why nobody fights with them is because they make 1% margin at the bottom. You don't fight with 1% margin, you see. And so I thought to myself, what business can just raise prices all the time? Okay. And then why are the factors that they can raise prices all the time? Now, when you think about a highly successful business, whether in any particular area, they're usually highly successful because they take one particular niche and edge and they run it to the extreme. So, Costco runs it to the extreme by turning over inventory, everything way faster than everyone, blah, blah, blah. So what company takes it to the extreme by just raising prices like hell all the time? And why can they do that? And then that brought me to study the luxury goods market and also the alcohol markets. So now, before we start thinking about here, we need to think about one question is, the returns of various companies or various industries over the growth in GDP of a country Okay. Now, if a country is first starting out, 
what will be the thing that gives you the most returns? Construction, power generation, internet, logistics. These businesses make the most money at first when a company starts to come up. Ports, all these kinds of ports still make money now, even afterward. But these are the businesses that make the most money as they're growing because why? There's a huge amount of demand for it and not enough, not enough supply. And then over time, as the country develops, the returns of these businesses starts to drop. And then now you see something like a, a fixed IR return of, let's say, something like 10% or so. Okay. Then the next step would be what is above that? Chicken, eggs, flour. Food, sugar, food palm oil, etc. Commodity specifically. And so you see this segment again start to boom like hell and then they start to flatten off. You just look, very simple answer is, you take QL's account and you look at 20 years ago versus now. 20 years ago, they can do 25%, even 30% ROE, no problem. Yes. Now they can't really do that anymore. And then after this tier, what is the next tier? As GDP goes up, well, milk, branded milk, Ice creams, snacks, bread, uh, non processed food, food etc., yeah. or basically slightly higher end food. Okay, and then these are the segments that then continue to boom afterwards. That would be like your Tyson Foods, your Munchies, all this kind of stuff. So they they start to boom on top of that. Now, so what is so the 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 thing here is that every successive as as GDP grows, right? The needs of the people change and the things that they usually want at the top, as long as the supply is not enough, you can always expect to make more money as a, as a market grows. Now, the, the problem is that, so as this market grows, etc. so what you also notice is that as you go up each tier, right, the effect of branding becomes more and more, become much stronger over time. So for example, who made that road? Plus or Maju, you don't give a shit, yeah. you know? But then who made that egg? QL or this one? You give a slight amount of shit. Not a lot of shit, but a slight amount of shit. Yeah. Okay. And then go up some more. Who made this biscuit? Munchies or Hapsing? Well, I give more shit to this. You know? But then when you go up one more step, then you go to be like, who made this alcohol? Is it some cheap one? Is it an expensive one? Then I give more shit. And then as you go up even more, you go to who made this bag, etc. Yeah. People care about it more. So that's the first one we need to understand. Now, the second one we need to understand is how luxury is to understand what is the tailwind behind luxury goods over the last 10 plus years other than just the increase in GDP over time. The second tailwind of luxury goods is that there is a humongous, is that extremely strong brands become hyper brands. Okay. While brands that are not so strong just die. Okay. So what is an extremely strong brand? Now, an extremely strong brand will be something like Rolex or Patek. Now, what do I mean by extremely strong and how they become hyper? It's very simple. For example, when you were, let's say, 12 years old, would you know what a Patek Philippe is? No, no. Exactly. Today, you ask any 12-year-old boy, I bet you they will know what a Patek Philippe is. Interesting. Okay. Last time, if you're nine years old, you probably don't know what a Rolex is. But now any nine-year-old will know what a Rolex is. And then there are brands that hit the hyper level already. That would be like Patek. So what I consider hyper is brands that any every 13-year-old in the world or every 12-year-old in the world will know and will to some extent want, even though they, they won't admit it, maybe. There will be your Patek Philippe. Your, there's a few Patek Rolex. 
Hermes, LV, Chanel, Dior, etc., etc. But there's only like less than 10 probably on your hands. Okay. So now what do I mean by hyperbrands? Now what the internet managed to do is that it turned brands that were extremely popular to becoming ubiquitous to the point where everybody knows. You see, even a 12-year-old boy now knows what Pate is, well, previously they didn't. Yeah. So this made their brand so insanely strong that let me just give you one small perspective. Rolex. You would think that for the biggest watch brand in the world, it must be run by some really highly competent family or whatever, right? Did you know that the founder of Rolex died something like 20, 30 years ago without leaving it down to anybody? Mm -hmm. Because he had no children, nothing. And so what he passed that company into was just a trust. A trust, yes. And this trust is run by two lawyers who after they die, it will pass to another two lawyers. And after they die, it's passed to another two lawyers. So you need to understand here, Rolex became the biggest brand in the world by having two lawyers who have zero business experience are running them. So it's clear now when you have a luxury business that reaches a certain amount of scale, it's the strength is incredibly insane. Okay. To the point where random people can run it and you can still raise prices like crazy all the time. So the question here that we need to ask is, is this the case for every single luxury brand? And then how did, for example, Patek or Rolex or the new guys, let's say FP, John, Richard Mille, how did they reach the top of being very close? Or Richard Mille, for example, is very close to being a hyper brand. Like yeah. probably like 15-year-old boys and above will know them. Not 11. 11 probably not yet, but 15-year-old boys and above yes. will know them. So the question is, how did these brands turn into hyper brands? And then what brands were used to be extremely famous stop becoming so famous or stop being able to raise prices like clockwork all the time. And so this comes to the part of we need to start to analyze luxury brands and then we need to start to split them up into the different kinds of luxury goods. Okay. So the first question is, what is a luxury good? Well, a luxury, and you cannot go and say, oh, this luxury good is a 1940s Ferrari that is no longer produced. That's not really a luxury good. Because I can't exactly make those in volume and sell, right? A luxury good is timeless products that you can sell brand new for very high margins. Okay? Now, so for example, let's move back to, let's say, 2008. Back then, Nokia was still number one in the world and there was this phone called Vertu. Yes. They sold 30,000 ringgit Nokia phones. Okay? Now that division no longer exists and there's no luxury phone segment ever. Last time there used to be, now there isn't. What is he saying here? It tells number one, in a luxury goods segment, there cannot be huge technological advancements. Okay? And the product itself cannot be essential to your life. If a product is essential to your life with technological advancements, it cannot be a luxury good because you, I mean, imagine if you held a Vertu phone now and your friend's holding an iPhone, you just feel like a retard, right? Yeah. Correct? So the, the, the act of purchasing these goods need to f- make you feel like you are very smart, that you are a person of taste, etc. It can't make you feel like an idiot. It's the status symbol thing. Yeah. 
It's status symbol, but if you think about status symbol, right? If you really want to show off how rich you are, why don't people just print out a, st- a, a picture of their bank statement and put it on their shirt, right? Versus buying yeah. an LV goods. But you see, but it's not really, but you feel like an idiot and an asshole one way, but not an idiot and an asshole if you were to show people that you have a big house or Ferrari, et cetera. Okay. So that is one. So we think, so now we need to think about if that's the case. So if you look at the accounts of, let's say, Hermes or LVMH today, you will see that the number uh, goes up uh, exactly like clockwork. It's just every year is higher than the next, every year is higher than the next. Montclair, every year is higher than the next. But if you look at, let's say, Richemont, which owns Cartier, and also uh, a few watch brands, or you look at Kering, which owns Gucci and a few other brands, their prices, their, their, stock, their earnings do not go up like clockwork. If you look at Canada Goose, their earnings do not go up like clockwork. If you look at Ferrari even, their earnings do not go up like clockwork. Why? So that's the second question we have to ask ourselves, why that is happening. Now, the difference here is you need to understand what product are you selling, what kind of R&D is needed, and what kind of people you're selling to. Now, the first difference you need to differentiate is, are you selling to mainly men or women? Now, if you go online uh, and you look at Hermes videos, uh, or let's say people who buy Hermes, um, what's the thing that, what's the most common videos? The most common videos would be unboxing videos. Unboxing of Hermes, then you look at how excited she is at this validation that she's getting from buying this Hermes bag and how happy she feels. If you look at watches, what kind of videos it is? It is videos of people buying and selling watches. Or it is videos of people telling the very deep and detailed story about these watches. Or it is videos of people taking a microscope to the watch to show you the finishing of the watch versus other brands. So what you can tell here is when you're selling to men or women, for women, you need to appeal to their their logical side via emotion. And then for men, you need to appeal to your emotional side via logic. Okay? You can't just tell a guy, this watch is one million, pay it. You know, you can't. So, so now, you think about, you want to sell a watch, right? It's to the extent where your customers are taking a micron electric, uh, electron telescope to your watch uh, to go and see how good your finishing is versus yeah. a woman just buying a bag. So there's a huge amount of difference there. And also the thing that you need to understand here is that uh, the price of a watch is very different that from a price of a bag. Okay. So a watch, a really high-end watch can go up to millions, at least like 5 million per watch. And it's very common for, let's say, I mean, the AP starts at what, 40K US or something like that. Okay. Well, the highest end bag, it's around only, let's say, 10,000, 15,000 euros. Although you need to spend a lot of money on other places before you can buy that bag. But the answer is that there's a big differential in gap. And so the, and also the cost of materials for each is completely different. Okay. A mess makes maybe 85% gross profit margin and, and the watches are more like 65, 70%. Okay. So. Now, then the second part you need to understand, we need to understand here is let's say we go into the bags. So even if like, let's say you talk about Ferrari, right? 
if they're going to sell a car for like 2 million over the 250,000 one, they need to at least show you like this car is a little bit faster than the other one or this car handles around the track a little bit better or whatever they need to say. So there, there is still a de- quite a strong amount of R&D that needs to go into there, which is expense. Okay. So then we go into the category of goods that uh, there's a very funny thing that the, that the, that the, that the, I, I can't remember if it's Birkenstock CEO or was it Canada Goose CEO that said, this is not some back brand where they can just raise prices by five ten percent every year. Okay. So we now go into the back, into the handbag brands. Okay. So that will be your Chanel, Gucci, Prada, everybody. Then we need to ask ourselves, okay, why can Hermes and LV raise prices five ten percent or 15% every single year? and have their earnings grow up like clockwork, but why can't Kering do that? Okay, why can't Prada do that? Prada is having a resurgence, but they can't raise, a, but they can't seem to get the earnings perfectly flat like that, or perfectly even going up all the time. So then we need to start to understand the psychology behind these. Now, before we continue here, we need to ask ourselves one question. Eh? Okay, now the internet, like I said, have, have made hyper brands possible, but it's also created new channels for branding that previously did not exist. So for example, now I can be hyper famous as a celebrity. And then if I'm hyper famous as a celebrity and I sell a lipstick, do I want yeah. to buy this or do I want to buy a Revlon? You know what? Screw Revlon. I would rather buy it from, and the answer is that most people would rather buy it from celebrities, etc. And so celebrities which hold their own fame have the best amount of leverage because their fame costs nothing to produce, okay? Now, so you think about what products that these celebrities can use their fame to push, right? It is products that is basically mid-premium. So nice face, nice like uh, night creams, nice, you know, makeups, Fenty, all this kind of stuff. Kylie Cosmetics, all this kind of stuff, proper 12 from Conor McGregor, and then the Maxals, and then the the all the male celebrities are selling alcohol, the female ones are selling skincare products. Okay, and then they can do very well. But then we have to ask ourselves, can these guys break into luxury? Like true luxury, like sell 15,000 for a handbag. Now, I want, to, I want to give you a very interesting thought experiment. Tell me one celebrity that you think can sell a handbag for 15,000 US dollars per bag at scale. Not at scale, definitely. No, you think about the product. Let's say I tell you today, okay, uh, Ming, Today, I'll give you 200 billion US dollars. I want you to disrupt a mess. No, I'll keep it, put it in the bank. <laughs> no, because you think about the, how difficult, no, number one, you think about the process. Uh, you think about process of a rich Thai tire. I bought this bag, okay? Who is this bag de- designed for? Oh, this is new Dior, new Chanel. If they say this bag is from uh, Kylie Jenner, 15,000. She doesn't care. She feels like a fucking idiot, right? Her friends mm-hmm. will just go, okay. But if she goes, this bag is from Virgil Abloh. You look at it, who the hell is Virgil Abloh? I don't know. That's precisely the point. You need to not know who that person is. The but name it sounds sound, European. And the name sounds so exotic. It sounds like an artistic fuller. Yes, he is. And so he sells very limited bags. He makes them by hand. He only does 100 bags a, a, a year, yeah. let's say. Okay. So how does it make the Thai Thai feel? Or the banking yeah, feels lady feels? She feels so smart, right? Yeah, I, I want to talk a little bit about the investment side, right? Like, I, I think you made quite clear the different tiers, right? Your mid-premiums, your premiums, your luxury. Uh, but why, 
specifically LVMH? Is it simply because they're just sold on? They're basically an ETF. They're like a luxury good, the top tier luxury good ETF. Given the number of names that they hold in their company, is that would that be your simple thesis? It's more like it's not mind. so simple as that. Unfortunately, right. it's so not. Why LVMH specifically? Because I know you told me that LVMH owns. You rather own LVMH than the S and P five hundred, right? I would uh, probably yes, but. Why is not so much LVMH? There's the first thing we need to understand about. So the thing is that you need when you think about driving returns for your company, right? The one thing that you notice over time as you as you study all these companies is a lot of companies that have a limit to their head. Once they hit the limit, they can't go up anymore. For example, QL, yeah, when it right. hits a certain limit, if not for the sun going, let me open Family Mart, they would have hit something like a limit to their head. They can't grow much more. Tissue manufacturers, blah, blah. But if you invest in a company that has already hit the limit, you can't really expect strong returns moving forward. So you need to think about businesses that have no limits to their growth. Okay, now limits to their growth can come from two areas. One is that the industry has hit the saturation point and you need to move to the next step as GDP goes up. Or the simple answer is I'm already very rich and I don't feel like chionging anymore. I don't want to work like hell anymore. I'm tired. For example, one one, they want to expand to overseas. And who are they sending to expand to overseas? You know, one of their high-level managers go overseas and open a factory. That is not how you expand overseas if you really wanted to expand overseas. That is something like, you know, maybe it will slowly grow over time. If you really wanted to expand overseas, the boss will need to go back to his old days and go into the factory and sleep on the floor and then every single day go and meet customers himself. He needs to be like Elon Musk. Now, Elon Musk is very special in that the guy loves chaos. The guy loves stress. The guy loves working like hell. So even if he's the richest man in the world, he's going to work like hell anyway. Okay, but this is not the case for most people. So, and number two, when you pass it down to your kid, you need to understand your son is not going to work as hard. Your, your daughter will never work as hard as you. They will never be as smart as you. They will never do the things that you're willing to do. So you need to then think about if that is the case, right? What business can have children like that and still do extremely well over time. Remember, we need to link it back to just now. Rolex is being run by two lawyers who do not know how to make a watch or design a watch. Yeah, and, and everyone in Bernard's uh, family, the children are all like, they already started already, right? Quite a few of them. Uh, like they're in Tiffany's, they're in... Correct. Now, wherever, uh. the question here, so before... Because the thing here is that obviously I can just go and say, just do this too. But then it's also very important for me because here's the thing. Hermes is 45 times earnings. How do you buy a company that is 45 times earnings unless you really understand the dynamics beneath it? Okay. Now, the second point I would like to make here very quickly is that you think about how you value an investment, huh? You would think about all future, you think about how you, you come up with a DCF, right? You will say earnings grow at 15% per year. 
and then it slows down to 10 or 5 and then after that it grows it stops growing and then it it won't grow faster than inflation right and so you come up with a certain value at the bottom and because your 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 discount rate for a terminal value is inflation if a company can always raise prices above inflation what is the terminal value it's infinite in theory exactly so here you are dealing with companies that are theoretically worth infinite. So when they are theoretically worth infinite, you kind of go, am I fucking insane? Right. Yeah. And so you kind of need to really understand the beneath on it on how can you always raise prices above inflation? Like what are all the underlying factors beneath raising prices above inflation? Okay. So we come into, let's say for, let's now we just go into very simply into like the bags, like LV, Hermes, Chanel, Dior, Chanel, Coach, Prada, yeah. etc., And Gucci. Now, Prada at one point in 2010 to 2013, they made a lot of money. Okay. But they stopped make, but then after at that point, their revenue just hit a certain, just dropped to a, just started dropping and then it stayed flat and started to actually drop a bit before now it's growing up again. And the same thing happened to Gucci, etc. But not so much to LVMH and Hermes. Now, why is that? Okay. Now, there are a few rules when it comes to, to maintaining a hyper brand. And they are the simplest rules that rich children's son all will know very clearly in their bones. Yes, yes. Number one is, do not increase supply by a lot. Every year, you should increase supply maybe 5%. Okay, the Ferrari owners have a very interesting philosophy. They say we will always sell one less one less car than the demand. Okay, but in bags you need to sell less than that. You need to sell a lot less than the demand. So usually they only increase demand. They only increase supply rate by five percent. In the twenty tens to twenty thirteens, fourteens, Prada and Gucci did not take that route. They went and increased supply too much, and then suddenly Gucci went from being a really popular brand to you. Yeah a bit of you, not you a lot, but a bit of you, same with Prada. The second one is you need to always increase prices every year by around five to 10%. Now, why is this a good thing? Now you need to understand that, for example, uh, when people buy luxury goods like watches or bags, right? Oftentimes they don't think of it as an expense at all. Because you can constantly see news online of people selling their bags or their watches at an auction and it makes like, this amount yeah. of money. Yeah. Some Hong Kong billionaire sells off his Hermes collection that seemed like two billion Hong Kong dollars or something like that. Okay. So the thing is they become investments. Okay. And so people don't really see it as spending money anymore. But the main thing you need to make sure is that you make sure that the prices maintain and the level or go up over time. Okay. And then the third one is obviously don't insult China and don't dilute the brand. So to give a very sim- very funny story, there was this time when Hermes started selling these silk bags and the demand was through the roof. It went up too much. So one of the sons looked at that and then he went, I'm going to cancel that bag. I'm going to stop selling it. Why? Because it's selling too much. And he informed the board, I'm going to sell, I'm going to stop selling it because it's selling too much. And the board all clapped at him. You've learned your lesson. When it's selling very well, stop selling it. And these brands, you think about how do they succeed? Uh? Brands, other people succeed by, I want to find the most efficient way of manufacturing these products and the most efficient way to give the most beautiful designs, etc., etc. These brands just go, no, we are going to find the most inefficient way possible to manufacture our products and find the most oldest and, and just like expensive way to make certain designs. So they go, I want to, silk, I want to, I want to print a silk. Well, you can do it in China. 
Or you can find that one person in Japan who knows how to print on silk using wax. Like literally, like take gigantic rolls of wax and then slowly design it into that design. And then it takes him like half a year to do one design. Yep, that's the guy. So, and then they can, then when they sell it, they can talk. And then for example, Hermes, when they sell it, they will tell you stories about how, oh, this thing, your bag will go back to the person who made the bag to repair it. And then you look at their videos, it's about this guy. He remembers that this bag that I used to touch and I talk about the soul of the leather, blah, blah. But I've been talking too much here. Let me go back a little bit. So the question here is, so now, what did Prada and Gucci do differently than let's say LVMH and Hermes? And Hermes is in a class of its own. So, the thing that you need to, that I found also is that, for example, the, re, the most recent quarter, Hermes grew at something like 18%. LV leather goods grew only like 6%. So why can Hermes still maintain 18% versus, Hermes, versus LV 6%? The sim, my, my, my theory for this would be that, here is a second question. What is the price of getting into the, the Prada family? Or even the Gucci family. What's the price of getting in the Prada family and Gucci family where people know that you have a, that you are, you know, owning a Prada or a Gucci good? I wouldn't know that. I've not bought it. Let's say a t-shirt, 2,000 ringgit. Mm. Okay. What's the price of getting into the Hermes family? Expensive. It's not just expensive. It's you, even if you buy most of their products, right? Nobody will know that you're holding Hermes. And that's the point. You see? How, the only way that you know is Hermes, right? If it's the belt, which is to be fair, like five, six, or, but also people don't really, but there's only the belt, you see? And the second one is a Hermes Birkin or Kelly bags. The Birkin or Kelly bags is 15,000 US. But to get, be able to buy those bags, you need to spend roughly 30,000 US dollars on different products that are not the bags before they let you buy the bags. You see? So what is happening there is that Hermes does not dilute their brand. <clears throat> at all. In order to get into the family the legitimate way, you need to spend almost 50,000 US dollars. That's almost 250k ringgit. Okay. Now, what is the the price of getting into a Prada and Gucci and LVMH is 2,000 ringgit or so. You can buy a t-shirt. Okay. And what happens when you are selling t-shirts as well is that people fake your goods a lot more. And when people fake your goods a lot more, people will see your brand around more. When people see your brand around more, it stops being that luxurious. So it dilutes the brand. So it actually matters that you sell t-shirts because when you sell t-shirts, people know it's your brand and then it's no longer that exclusive anymore. And the second part here is that Hermes as a brand, if you look at LVMH, LVMH spends something like 30 to 40% of the profit per year on uh hiring people, beautiful people, famous people to market yep. their products. Hermes does not spend anything. Hermes only marketing is, Hermes marketing is actually profitable because you have, their marketing is you go and spend 30,000 US dollars before I let yeah, you buy you my bag. Yeah. And then you wear those stuff around. La. Fair enough, fair enough. Okay. So coming back to here, the second point on like why I think these companies can continuously uh, succeed is that especially the ones that are extremely high-end bags like let's say Hermes, is that you you put yourself number one, do you know what happens when Hermes raise their prices? Do you know what their customers say? 
fantastic, right? They probably hold a few Hermes bags, so they are profiting and they don't even mind buying now because they feel richer anyway, so they could buy another one. Precisely. Yeah. And do you know the funniest thing when I was talking to a broker in Hong Kong? She was complaining. She said, she said Chanel raised the prices almost 20% for that bag. Mm-hmm. And I wanted it so much. I, I was so mad that my SA, the sales associate, did not inform me beforehand. But I still bought it lah because, you know. <laughs> so, you know, spe- speaking of broker, right? Let's, let's move away from China a bit and the luxury market. Um, I, before, I assume it's the same for alcohol, right? Alcohol is slightly different in the sense that depending on what alcohol, but alcohol, the high-end alcohol in China, the Pai Tiu companies, there's four. Uh, you, you, if you just Google a top four Pai Tiu, you will know who they yeah. are. They sell the hyper-luxury ones that's like 2,000 ringgit per bottle minimum. And the consumption rate of those alcohol right now is one small cup per per. Per, per citizen in China. So if you assume that over time, the country will get richer enough to the point where they will go, you know what, I want to drink it during the festive, the Zhongqiu Jie and during Chinese New Year and during the weddings, which is roughly three times a year. And you assume that let's say they drink three cups a year. So that's nine cups of Baijiu per year of high-end Baijiu. Because if you're talking, because if you're rich enough, right, for Chinese New Year, do you want to buy the cheap one or the expensive one? Yeah, because you can spend more. It's a special occasion yeah, one. Yeah. The, theoretically, the TAM is roughly 10 times bigger. Lah. And the thing is that, again, come back to this question, how do you disrupt a luxury brand that understands how to... And in fact, it is probably the ultimate in terms of time, right? Because they've been around for more than a thousand years. I, I don't think any other brands can have not, the same. Maybe not a thousand years, but it's more of like- Several centuries, uh, right? At least. Motai has not been around for several centuries. Motai has been around since the CCP went and consolidated the entire okay. distillery and on that market. But it's famous for because that's being the alcohol of CCP. And the CCP have their own cigarettes that was very famous during the March. Until today, it's still very famous. You can buy it at like two times the price of normal cigarettes. But it's not listed like that company. But- um. But there is a huge amount of growth that is still coming. And the simple answer is that if you think about trying to disrupt a very high-end alcohol market or any high-end brand market, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah good luck. There yeah. are roots to it. Like you look at how Richard Mill did it or FP John did it. Uh, if I were to continue here, it would be another yeah. 10, 15 minutes. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I want to go into uh, America now and you know you mentioned you talked about broker and then it triggered me to ask you about another broker that I know yourself and your team is interested in which is IBKR so mm. IBKR uh, for those who don't know those listening who don't know it's it's a broker mm. in the US it is one of the cheapest very easy to open and uh, yes uh, people feedback that they quite like the UI UX um, but I know it's something that you're bullish on as well, right? Um, the this thesis company, for yeah. IBKR is quite straightforward. Number one, in terms of UI UX, they're not the best. Yeah, Food definitely, to, definitely. Food to all these guys are better. Correct. Correct. But the thing that people don't realize is that IBKR actually started to have, there's a, this thing called IBKR desktop now, which is not the trader workstation, it's IBKR desktop, which has better UI UX for the desktop app because desktop one is definitely quite confusing. So, uh, I suspect that over time they will roll out to their mobile phones, etc., yeah. to improve the UI UX. And for me, the UI UX for the mobile phones is actually not bad, to be honest. I, I have no problem navigating through it, but I can see a, a few things that they can improve that. But the main thing for IBKR is that 
if you look at their trading volume over time, right? Basically, they are growing at a CAGR of roughly 10% plus every single year. The, the trading volume growth. Correct. There's very little people or even the AUMs, for example, there's very little companies in the world, trading companies or brokerage companies in the world that can do this. And the reason why they can do this is because number one, they, are, they can execute trades at on average 30% cheaper. Most people will know this, but yes, they can exec- they execute their trades on, on average 30% cheaper. Even if the other party tells you, oh my, I have no fees. No, it's not no fees. It's you, you make it some other way. So IBKR, the one thing that was interesting is that a lot of people at some point when they open a brokerage business, they will go, you know what? I want to be in the market making business as well. Since I see all this data coming in about the buy sell and I get the data first. So why don't I buy, I make the market as well and make that 0.01% or whatever it is extra. And then you compound that over time. IBKR took the route of saying, no, we will not trade again our customers and sold their trading arm to, I can't remember who, Two Sigma or somebody. Okay. And the second one is, IBKR offers you the cheapest margin loans possible. And the third one is, IBKR offers you the highest uh, bank deposit rates. Now, why IBKR can do all those things is because on average, they are the most efficient in terms of the amount of revenue per customer, per employee. Per employee. I think their per employee revenue is like two times higher or somewhere than Charles Schwab. So the question is then, why did IBKR not go up from 2000, not go up much from 2000 to 2020? Well, or 2021. The answer is very simple. Brokers need to make money from balances. They were making no money from balances because unlike other brokers, they did not go and say, you know what? We're going to buy 30-year bonds. Right. They don't take short duration funds to buy long duration uh, assets. Asset, yep. Okay. Yep. So they didn't make much money on that. But now that the interest rates have gone up, they are starting to make very significant on money their deposits, on their deposits. Uh, yeah. Okay. And the thing is, I don't really, at least this is just my opinion. I don't know if it's right. I don't really see inflation dropping anytime soon because inflation, it comes in waves. Okay. So first is this person wants the money to go up. And then after three months later, that person who is affected by this person raising prices want the money to go up. And then the other person. So you you see the, the wave just goes like that. First is the eggs that went up and then the sugar. And then now UAW in the US is saying we need all our salaries to go up as well. And then if their salaries go up, the cars are going to go up. Yeah, it's a, yeah. So it's a very painful thing. Maybe we won't raise the rates anymore, but I don't really see a path to the rates going down again or at least back to where it used to be. I don't know for how long. But... Probably not appropriate this amount of time. So well, at least it is safer to assume that it won't go down. Is what you're trying to say? Yeah, it's safer to assume that. And also, to be frank, we have not really seen the other shoe drop yet, because you know, when the rates started going up, people think that the rates will go down fairly soon. And only now, when everybody is basically underwater in terms of commercial property, etc., do you start to see people list the property? but they have not gotten desperate yet. They are starting to get desperate. Like for example, I don't think any real estate broker, I don't think real estate brokers in the US make money this year at all. It's like very hard to sell because yeah. the seller goes, I bought it at two at 2% cap or one or 3% cap. 
And the buyer goes, I can buy a treasury for 5% cap. I want 8%. So I'm asking for 60, 70% discount on your price. You're not going to sell it. So, uh, but then over time, we are seeing now is that, well, the refinancings all start in 2014, 2015, 20, by 2016, 17, basically, basically 50, 60 to 70% of the market have to be refinanced already. And I think next year, probably something like 15, 20% of loans have to be refinanced. So why, why is this, uh, I mean, in short, how, how do we tie this back to IBKR? So, the so the so the the point I was trying to make there is that the the other shoe has not fallen, and so we have not really seen how interest rates were really going to play up, and so I think that IBKR should be able to maintain current earnings on their interest income at, for a pretty decent amount. And how much time. does the interest income contribute to bottom line? I can't remember now, but if I'm not mistaken, it's somewhere around more than half. Uh. So it's, it, yeah, so it's not any bigger than competitors, but it is bigger versus the other business units, basically. Correct. And the thing also is that we need to understand, I be, remember, businesses who highly succeed need to hyper-focus on one thing. And when it comes to brokerages, etc., I think if you are consistently showing to all your largest customers that you do not trade against their volume, and you make the lowest amount of money from them, and then you have the highest economy of, you have this humongous yeah. scale by automate, highly automated processes that basically mean that you have two to three times the revenue per employee and yeah, therefore yeah, you can off. Fair enough. So it's yeah. just a very nice little cycle that will keep churning. So fair enough. It's a, for me, I, I, it's a company that I liked for a long time, but I just never really bought because it never really went up because they, they just can't make money from the interest, but you know. Okay, very yeah. simple thesis, I like it. So I think my uh, not last like luxury. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well, I wouldn't say it is not like luxury. Luxury, the point. Uh, that I think I think the luxury you need to get into the psyche of the people buying it, and once you accept it for what it is, then I think the thesis become a bit clearer. It's yes on that, but also the side. The second part of the psyche is that we need to understand is that you imagine you're the son of a luxury business, uh, of let's say Bernard son. What's your job? You think about the Hengan son, uh, his job is to find new business processes to make it much more efficient. He needs to find new suppliers to get the cost down. He needs to find new markets. He needs to find ways to fight with his competitors. And all of these things are not sexy or fun things to do. Yeah, but if for luxury... You think about the process. Let me find more. If they come up with a new, with a new quality material that is consistent and perfect, right? They will say, no, I don't want this one. So let me tell you how Hermes negotiates for the for their leather. Yep, yep. Give me the most expensive one. That one, okay, take that. Does Do you it, know how fun that is? Yeah, for the supplier as well, yeah. Correct. And you think about the son, what is his job? Does he need he what does he need to do? He just needs to come up with the same design and a little bit of something fresh per year. And that's it. Increase pro yep. production five percent, increase price ten. It's uh it's it's like FIFA. <laughs> and mm. the best part is his job is to for the son of Bernard, no what is his job? His job is to hang around celebrities. Oops, sorry. His job yeah. is to hang around celebrities and date Lisa from Blackpink. That's his oh, job. Is he dating Lisa from Blackpink? Okay. He's probably, but his job is to do that because what you do, you hire celebrities to do your marketing, right? So what's your job? To hang yeah. around celebrities all the time. What would you do if you're not working, hanging around celebrities all the time and being in the fashion industry, which the YTL daughters are in the fashion industry, 
when you're rich, you always feel like going to the fashion industry for fun because you have nothing to do. Fair enough, fair enough. So I, I uh, just a couple of questions left before we end. Uh, I know, you know, let's, let's come back to Malaysia. And it's interesting before this podcast, you told me that you were interested in, or at least you've had your eyes on one Malaysian company and that's Asia File. Now I have one of my analysts, He's also a big fan of Ijeval. Uh, it's very cheap, but of course, the filing business, even though they have pricing power, uh, is dwindling, right? Because who uses file nowadays? But they also have, I think, uh, a Tupperware segment, something like that. And they have tons of cash. They pay dividends. Uh, they've got a good, seems like a pretty good management. But why why Ijeval? Why, why did you... You know, you look so, at all these big businesses globally and instantly tiny Asia file comes under your radar. So, um, what do you think is the net profit margin of Nike? I, I should know this, but I don't. It's roughly 10%. 10. Okay, yeah. LV is around 20%. Yeah. Adidas is around 5%. Yeah. What's the net profit margin before tax of Asia file? No, it's a lot higher, I think. It's 18%. Very close. So, you think about this, huh? They sell files, which is supposed to be a highly commoditized market, and they can make 18% net profit margin at yes. the bottom. This, yes. So they must be doing something very right. So the first question would be number one, the owner of Asia File is somebody, if you talk to him, he's somebody who is extremely smart and extremely sharp. He has very clear understanding about where the market is, what its product is, and where the market is going to be. Okay. Um, the reason why Asia File did not grow revenue from the, 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 the previous years, now they're starting to grow again the revenue, but the, re the reason revenue didn't grow much the previous years, like you said, people started using yet less files as well, yeah, yeah. but they managed to maintain their margins. Yes, that's correct. So, Asia, so currently, Asia File can make the product. So, the, so in terms of the file businesses, it's probably going to stay around there. But in terms of the Tupperware businesses, they started to go into these plastic goods. And then if you go on TikTok, all these places now, these people are usually fighting with you by dropshipping it from somewhere. Okay? Correct. Now, so what the owner always does when he, before he launches a new product is that he will buy all the existing products on the market. Then he will look through all of them and really understand like why people don't like about this product. And then he will make a better version of that product at scale and sell it directly for himself. And then he also, for the overseas places like UK, US, all this, he will get his own distribution center there so that he can ship to the area in bulk. So that imagine you are, uh, you, you imagine if you are, they are basically doing M2C like hell. Okay. And they can make these things at the best prices that nobody can beat. That That's very right. few people can beat. Lah. And then because the file market is not so big that you that, that China is so interested in that business. Uh. And then the next thing also is that the for example, the owner until today he's still extremely focused on the business. For example, when he went to Taiwan to go and look at the molds, etc., for the new plastic goods that he's planning to sell, he was he basically spent the entire week within the mold factory to make sure that they get it out exactly per how he liked how he wants it because he doesn't want it to go back and have to switch. Like how many people at that level will still go to a factory and spend five days, full days there to check every single mold to make sure it's exactly per how he wants. 
It's True. by now that we have found somebody to do it for him. So now, the, so then the question is that why Asia fell? Now, number one, the owner is very clear about e-commerce being the future. And for him, he knows very clearly all his competitors online and what their costs are. And he is very able to undercut them on costs and on quality at the same That's time. Right. And so their products, if you look at them selling it online, they're doing very well. The Tupperware segment is something that they started doing recently and uh, is growing pretty quickly. They have not broken out the numbers yet, but it's growing pretty quickly. And if you look at their most recent quarter, earnings went up. Now, the earnings went up for one very simple reason. Before that, they raised the prices due to shipping costs uh, going up. Now, when shipping costs go down, they didn't reduce their prices. So shipping costs used to be Margin expansion, yeah. Correct. And I don't see them lowering their prices that much because, again, they are the biggest manufacturer for all this kind of stuff. And it's not like the price difference is that big. Lah. You know? So, they, I, so I suspect they'll be able to maintain these earning profiles going forward. And if you look at, you can maintain this current price with lower costs over the next few years. Not a few years, maybe the next one, two years. And then as you see the other segment, which yeah. is the plastic Tupperware goods segment going up, etc. And also the thing is that when you make all these, in my opinion, when you make all these like plasticware goods, right? Humongous, humongous scale doesn't really make a difference once you have scale. It's not like a car where you want like 1 million square foot of space to really hit the scale, you know? And you need a small amount of space too. You need a factory of space uh, and you need yeah. like some level of scale, but he has that already. So he, has, so he is very clear on all these things. As for the dividend, they used to pay a lot more. Now they pay a lot less, but- He uh, pay himself more now? No, his salary is very low, like less than four, less than 300K or something like that. It's taking an increase recently, but okay, anyway. Continue. But the reason why they dropped the salary was that, I'll just say that there's some kind of, he's still in control of the company, et cetera, but there's just, they have some kind of personal issue. But, you know, I suspect that, I suspect that the management, may or may not be over the issue over time. And so I I think the David and look, the one thing about this guy is that a lot of CEOs in the in Malaysia or anywhere in the world, you look at them, uh, they will they are very they're always thinking about how they can take more money for themselves, you know. Like True. even when they go and list the company, uh, they will think, oh at least I give you the shares, right? For placement, you need to give me 10% of your profit, 20% of profit. Wow. It's normal. So if a company, if the owner is like that to you and just listing the shares and just telling the broker or the whoever they place the shares to, I give you these shares, but you need to give me this amount of profit back. How kiam siap will he be to the man, to the minority shareholders? Insanely kiam siap. But this guy, he is not like that. His salary has historically been very low and they historically paid a very good dividend. So I'm pretty confident that the dividend over so next year, one, two years should come back up. My, my question is, do you think that you know, he can excel in the Tupperware segment the same way he has excelled in the filing segment. Oh, definitely. Is, is that purely based on his track record or is there something deeper on like the strategy of the plastic sec, the Tupperware segment? In a lot of things, in a lot of businesses in this world, uh, you can do all the study you want. Uh, but uh, they, uh, once you think that the industry is workable and the plan works, right? The only thing you need to do is you need to look at that fellow's face uh, and yeah. his track record uh, and go, do I think you can do it or not? That's it. Yeah. Like, you look at 
Tesla and the constant losses. And then it went from losing like 2 billion a year to making like 24 billion a year or 20 billion or something a year in the space of like two years. Look, sometimes you, the, the thing that people don't understand sometimes, or at least I didn't understand sometimes is that the maximum loss is zero if you don't leverage, but the maximum gain is theoretically infinite lah. Until you die lah, I suppose. So, if you sometimes think that you meet the right person and the price is really not horrifying, it's worth putting in a bet lah. So, this guy, based on how he has, based on, based on how he has run his entire business, all this while, etc. Uh, I think he's one of the sharpest businessmen in Malaysia. He knows very clearly he needs to go into e-commerce. So, he's going very big into e-commerce. He knows clearly that his competitors are the dropshippers. So he makes sure that he manufactures them at a price that nobody can ever beat him when including shipping. So he makes sure he sells the best product for the lowest price. And he can do that because he manufactures them directly. Yeah. And he doesn't have to expand new capex that much per se. Right? some new capex, but it's, but you know, before- The existing capacity for his filing business can be sort of- uh, I'm not, not not really no. because you are using more like molds and stuff. Okay. So like the presses. But I remember before he started the new line and he needed to come up with a new product line, you know, he went for six months and just visited all the different factories that do the similar things. Like just visited them all one by one, one by one. And then he really learned it. Then he went and built his own one. He did not really go and, you know, like just say, let me just build one now and see what happens. It's, yeah. yeah. So- you know, the only thing is that he was doing the filing business. He's not in the filing business and not in another bigger business. Lah. But the thing is that, you know, he still is running one of the best filing companies in the world. And, uh, you know, if he was suddenly very interested in doing five different kinds of businesses, maybe you would wonder if it's a good idea because... But now it's just one, now there's one and now there's two. Well, what do you think? I mean, of course, I'm not trying to put you on the spot or anything, mm. but what, what is, uh, if you had to give a, a, your own projection on when you think the, the Tupperware business will do better than the filing, what do you think that, that timeline is? I don't know what the timeline is, but I know that next this year, the next two years, they should probably make more money than they ever did before. And that particular segment is going to just keep growing up. Yeah. And now it's, it's about 15% of sales or profit, I, be, I believe. Somewhere around there. I'm not sure yeah. where the exact numbers are, but it will keep growing. And the capex for all this is not very high. Yeah. It's not very high. It's just a question of do you have the, are you very clear about how to manufacture it at a much better price than other people? And do you have the scale and yeah. But the thing is that it's very easy to get a scale now when you just sell it on e-commerce. Huh? That's right. So what he's trying to do is trying to manufacture those stuff and straight away go onto the platforms. And Correct. Sell That's it. basically what they're doing now. Right. And and by the way, the thing the amount of discounts given by Shopee basically mean that they're actually selling and they're actually selling the products to the customer at net below cost after the discounts. The customer is getting it for below cost actually. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And so, these Tupperwares, like, do they have a specific segment they advertise it? Food? Oh, it's, every, it? it's all the kind of stuff. Like, you want Anything. a rack to clip your clothes, rack to keep your shoes. Yeah. 
all those kind of stuff. So you can find them online. And then I personally went and bought, because I was definitely looking for a shoe rack kind of thing for my shop. So I went and bought all the different shoe racks. And uh, yes, this was by far the best. Interesting. It's uh, the kind of like stack kind of things where you can pull out one by one and put the shoes inside. So and then it's like transparent, right? Correct. One brand that I bought was so flimsy to the point where we needed to take tape to like tape that thing together and make it work. But his, when we bought it, it's good. It fits everything perfectly. It stands maybe, stably. Maybe I need to buy as well. But it's I the the reason why I was a bit hesitant about telling you about this talk is that it's stupidly liquid. It's insanely it is, it is. liquid. Like, I mean, you can buy two hundred k a day la, but you will need to buy up the entire queue la. There's mm. only like three queues and then you need to hunt them the whole thing. Uh. So I, I don't really want to say it because if I say it, then well, I don't know how many of your followers will buy, but then if they buy, then you know, it's just, you know, it's, yeah. I, I feel bad because it's, I, I rather talk about LV because everybody can buy and we won't really move the, pr- the price that much That's or true. any. I mean, just to end, right? I know you have one learning lesson that you want to share about what actually drive returns and how it's actually changed over time. Maybe you can share with us what you believed before about driving returns in a stock versus what you believe today. The answer would be sometimes when you look at the price and you think it's, and you, you look at the business and you go, okay, there's a lot of all these problems or, or like the management does not buy back stock or does not pay enough dividends, blah, blah, blah. And then you think to yourself, but the price is so cheap, therefore it's fine. The problem here is that you are not, you are probably not pricing it right. It is, there are some businesses that will usually surprise you on the upside and there are some businesses that will usually surprise you on the downside. And different profiles of these businesses have different expected value outcomes because if you keep surprising me on the downside, we, oh, we made a bad acquisition or oh, we need to impair this thing or oh, we bought that and we need to make an impairment there. Over time, it's just, you know, that's one. It, it's not going to give you a good outcome. You want to find businesses that surprise you on the upside. Number two is that if you think about a lot of businesses and so some business, you look at it now, you go X. If you take out the cash, assuming the management pay all the cash as dividends, especially selling at 2P, yes, you're yeah. right. But the management is not paying out the cash. That's true. He has not done that for a very long time. And you're going to hold that for a long time, etc. So number two, it is that the directions of where the number is going is a little bit more important than what the current price is and how strong that direction is. To give you one simple answer, it is that sometimes I really wonder how people get such huge confidence levels for their stocks, but every single business is going to be heavily disrupted over the next 20, 30, 50 years, whether you like it or not. The, 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 the weight of competition is so insanely strong. That's right. But I am very certain that LV and um, not maybe LV a little bit less, but I know for a fact, not for a fact, 99% that Hermes can always raise prices above inflation until the day I die. Just 10% every year. Yeah. 5%. So just above inflation. And you think you, you go and find me one other business that you think 
50 years from now, it's still going to be around and much, much bigger because they can raise prices by 10% every year. It's, and so you think about that and then you come down to the valuation of Hermes. It has never gone below 35 times earnings. Why? Since its entire history, by the way. Why? Because the strength of the business is insane. If I gave you 200 billion today and I said, disrupt a mess, you don't even know where to start. What are you going to do? Put it at a higher price? Who want to buy from you? Make it more exclusive. Make it exclusive and nobody want to buy also. Sell more at cheaper price, then you're not a mess. So, the, so that's what, and so, the, and, and so sometimes, if I were to told, if I tell you buy Hermes today and in 15, 17 years, you will get the stock for free based on the dividends and buybacks over time already. It sounds like a really good deal. So I don't own, I don't own that much Hermes now. I own more LV. I own more of the multi-players, et cetera. But Hermes is something, and, it, and to some extent, that also flows down to Costco. Although Costco is a bit different in that. There is a breakaway version of Costco that's in the smaller, in, smaller earning income countries like Mexico, et cetera. And their earnings are not constantly straight up all the time because they are not so good in the in the in the own brands and the those countries have lower purchasing power and so they can't really buy in the huge volumes that people typically do on yeah. the normal Costco. But if you look at Costco, why the earnings can go up in a straight line every single year, and you understand the underlying factors beneath it, like number one, their CEO is paid like thing what three or four million a year on a something like 300 billion or 400 billion revenue company, which is less than one third the CFO of like Meta. No, actually less than 20% of the CFO of Meta. And the CFO Meta is basically not a nobody. What has it done in life? You know, just yeah. a CFO, you know. So, uh, and you have that humongous amount of culture and process behind it like you think about how difficult is it the process to build up the network effects and the processes needed to make a 0.5 percent margin so i mean to summarize basically to summarize, put yourself in a situation where the, the the downside is limited but the upside is i would i would say i think the answer would be the answer would be always understand. Do you know there was this time when Silver Diamond Dynamic first dropped to like 70 cents or one dollar? You remember that big crash? Yeah. And then I remember me, and then I think to some extent, maybe even Rondi and maybe a few other guys, we were all thinking, well, in that case, why don't we buy the bonds in the yes. Malaysia side? You know, right. because it's like 30 cents on the dollar. If you think that the Malaysia is real, then the rest will be real, right? I bought some, I spent like 50, 70k. But after about three weeks later, I thought to myself, you know what? Something is wrong. I'm just going to sell it all. I thought I was smart. Then I went and bought and then I sold it all. Today, the bonds are trading on like one cent, two cent, or it's just basically bankrupt. The answer is that you can always, it's like, you know, there's a rule in bonds, you know, where you can always try and price for the downside or for the, you can always try and price for the potential bankruptcy of the business, but you will never price it right. Yeah. It's like, it's like country garden. Look, one year ago, it, it looked cheap, right? 1.3, the bonds were like 60, 70 cents. Now it's like 
thirty cents or less for the offshore bonds, and the stock price dropped by another half after it dropped by seventy percent. And why the direction of the numbers is right? And then you think to yourself, well, you know, it's zero point two of bulk, so it makes. Are you sure? The the look. The truth is that, and the the simple answer that I can also give you is why you should never try and say this price is okay when the I'm okay with these downsides of this stock because the price is this cheap. Here's the question: Are you that smart? Look, for me to go and say I like Ting Tong, right? I have to study the entire e-commerce and I have to study the entire logistics side, and after I have to go into the entire retail segment of the whole. Then only you really understand. Like you think about Dollar General, it seems cheap, yes, but Termo is coming in. How sure are you? And then after that, you study that and then you look at all these retailers and you go, wow, this intermediation is the answer. It's actually FMCG goods. And so now you need to study Mars, Kellogg's and Unilever and all this. And then you look at the site, there's Mr. Beast and Feastables. There's yeah. Prime and all that. Right, yeah. And then you look at the other end, the retailers are starting to make, to go and come up with their own branded products, etc. And so you come back to, you know, like let's say Kraft Heinz, you look at it and you go, well, it's eight times PE, it's 7% dividend. Why not? Yeah, are you sure? Are you that smart? Are yeah. you pricing it enough? You know? And these are the visible, these are the things that everyone can see. Let, me just, let me just give this. you another very simple statistic I can give you. Okay. 10% of the, let's say 10% uh, of us, let's say there's 1,000 stocks in the stock market. Okay. 5% of them do particularly well. Okay. Let's say you can make the right decision 90% of the time. Okay. So it's four, what, 40, eh? Let's say, 45. Yeah. Let's say there's, there's, there's let's say there's 1,000 stocks. 100 of them are usually the ones that beat, that do very well and match the index. Okay. The 900 is bad. And let's say you make the right decision 90% of the time. Okay. okay. So that means assuming that you went through all 1,000 stocks, right? You would probably make the right decision. You would probably find nine of the, you will probably find nine, 90, 90 of the good companies and roughly uh, 90 or 100, 90 of the bad companies as well. So you would actually end up with just a hit ratio of just 50%. You will only be right 50% of the time. Okay. And the second part that, we, that I didn't really understand is that you need to understand that you look at all these problems, right? You think, oh, this thing that will definitely, maybe they can do it, they can do it, they can do it, they can do it, okay? Now, let's say you look at a company that has 20 different things I need to get right, and you go, I'm a very smart person, I have the best knowledge in the world, I can get it right 95 to 90% of the time for each. Put that 90% in series for 20 times, and you see what percentage you get at the end. Well, you're right maybe 40% or 30% of the time. So, sometimes when you look at a business and you go, well, this thing, you know, I'm not sure, you know, can they really compete? Well, it's, you know, 7 PE, it's 6 PE, it's 10% dividend yield. You know, and then you you go, maybe they can still grow at 5%, ta -da -ta, and then what they need to do to grow 5%, ta -da -ta -da -da -ta, and then you list out all these sort of things and you say, well, I think on average, it should do pretty okay. Yeah, that's because you're not thinking. You're just saying words, you know. List all of the things out. Tell me what are the probabilities that you think all of them will go well, and then you multiply them. Then the answer is, oh, wow, I'm probably wrong. Like, and so you come down to all this, then you come back to Hermes and you ask yourselves, what needs to go right for Hermes to, to grow earnings at 5 to 15% per year? And then you go, well, the list is roughly three items long. Raise prices every year. Don't insult China. Don't increase supply. And do something new and interesting every year while just making the same product again and again. Like, can they raise prices 10% every year? 
well, I think I can have 100% certainty that he is smart enough to do this. Will he always only increase supply a little bit every year? Well, these people are literally born to understand that. Okay, 99.9% is right on that. Will they insult China? I think these people are smart enough to know that you don't ever insult China anymore. Okay, so 99% they won't do that. Do they know that they just need to do the same designs and a little bit of something extra, a little bit on the side? Well, I think 95, 99% they know that also. So what's the, the downside left? Well, the downside left is Europe goes and put pressure on China EVs because they are coming in too fast and too cheap. And they go and put a tariff on it. And China goes, how do I make Germany and other, and all these other countries push back on this? Well, what if I just tariff the shit out of French luxury goods and then France government will then go and basically put pressure on the rest of EU because France only exports luxury goods. So there's a the last research. Then the last research, what do you think are the odds? Well, probably 20-30%. So now you have a 60-70% chance of making the right decision instead of 30%. And the answer is that if they're tariffed, it, the, the, the sales might actually go up even more because it's harder to get. Like during COVID, the sales went up so fast because it was so hard to get and so people just bought like crazy via intermediaries. So you... You, you really, really need to think in series. So that's why also like for e-commerce or this kind of stuff, I, I am, you know, I, I have some confidence in them. I think they will do well. And I and the reason why I like Pintuoto and JD and VIP Shop, for example, is that their customers are obsessed with them. The customers are like a cult with them. They know that if I want the best thing for this, I need to go here, here, here. So yeah, the the answer that I can always give is that Whatever opinion or decision you have now is probably wrong. And it's always the only choice, the only thing that you can do is make sure that you're a little bit less wrong. Like you will never be right. Yeah. You're always making the wrong decision. You're never making the right decision. You are, and so when somebody tells me, well, I have 70% of my stock in JD or Alibaba, I'm just like, you must be a genius. Lah. Because I've studied. I, I mean, to be fair, the last one and a half years, I didn't really do much studying because I was busy with my business, etc. But before that, I spent almost three to four months. And even then, I still spent like, you know, one, two hours, three hours a week on, on all these companies and just trying to go through them one by one. And I can say that I barely, I think I barely know 50, 60% of JD of what it takes to make the right decisions for JD. And so, yes, I'm willing to buy because, you know, I know these guys are buying back the, like Alibaba is buying back the stock in large volumes. VIP Shaw is buying back the stock in large volumes. And so I know that the management is on my side, et cetera. But let's say you think about, let's say Pax Global. Okay, now it's selling at like two or three PEX cash. You know, they make the best, uh, the, the best, you know, the, 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 the car terminals in the world, et cetera, et cetera. The cheapest and the best. And then you look at that and then you go, well, they are going to make that for a long time, but then they're not paying all the dividends, et cetera. Sure, they'll still do very well, but they're not paying the dividends. And, you know, you think about how much that will affect you versus you just take the money and you just put it into Hermes. Look, if Hermes drops to 35 or 30 PE or even 25 PE, if it drops to 25 PE, I will sell everything and go into Hermes. There's no need to think already. Look, there's, there's four series of things and all of them are 99% plus, not all, except for one. So that's the thing that if I can leave with here is that you're re like is that everyone is really very, very stupid. Yeah. You're really very stupid. You're really not thinking about it enough. Huh? I, think, I think with that, it's a great... Uh it's uh, I mean, to call yourself stupid is oh, you sounds are. negative, but actually, when you think about it, you start off with the. I think Nassim Taleb talks a lot about this. Yeah. You you start off thinking you're dumb, 
And so you just go out becoming less dumb. And uh, that has been the way for a lot of the investors. I like uh, what Ray Dalio Soros, says. Yeah. Ray Dalio says, I'm, an, I'm a stupid idiot in relation to what I know and what I need to know. But the thing is, you only need to be less stupid than the average. The crowd, yeah. And that is not very hard to do. Like you, like the average crowd is like getting 40% on the test. You just need to get 65, 70%. That's very true. And with that, guys, uh, you know, thanks for coming on, uh, Jordan. Always a pleasure. Uh, hopefully, mm. the next time we do it, maybe six months a year, uh, you have new lessons to, uh, you know, illuminate. <laughs> no, so, no. Uh, you, you have uh, less, less uh, stupid realizations, I guess. Yeah. Uh, yeah, guys, you know, this is the end of the pod. Uh, thank you so much, as usual, for uh, listening. Uh, you want to shout out your business? Mm, no, not really. Uh, but uh, I currently run a beauty salon. Uh, but I suspect most of your <laughs> followers you are not. <laughs> you never know. Right. Yeah, maybe we can talk about that maybe in a year. Uh, so uh, how, how it's been going. I suspect I'll never talk about my yeah. own business because I don't need more competitors in it. And your followers yeah. are all above 35 and yeah. I suppose some of them are business people. Yeah, fair enough. All right, guys. That'll be the end of the podcast. Peace. See you in the next one. Bye-bye.